Welcome to Integral Talks, a podcast series brought to you by Integra Advisors, where we dive into the world of compliance, risk management, and due diligence, and provide you with expert insight and analysis to help you make more informed business decisions. Hello, and welcome back to Integral Talks. I'm your host, Alberto Laportilla, President and CEO of Integra Advisors. As long as I've known today's guest, I've always considered him an industry leader in understanding and evaluating risks in Latin America. For the last 30 plus years, John Price has focused his career on studying markets in Latin America and advising some of the world's largest companies on how best to do business and how to maximize their success in the region. John is a prolific author. He is the managing director of America Market, America's Market Intelligence, AMI, a leading consultancy in this space. Uh, he's co-written a book. Um, and uh, well, without further ado, let me introduce to all, everyone and invite Mr. John Price to the podcast. Hi, John. How are you? Alberto, I'm well. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's been far too long. It's been far too long. I was thinking it's been probably uh, at least a decade. So uh, it's great to great to see you and, and great to have you uh, on our podcast. Um, so let's talk about risk. So sure. I, I, I want to start big picture. Um, and in doing research for this podcast, uh, I, I read some data that uh, in two, 2022, the World Economic Forum said that the region Latin America as a whole grew about three and a half percent. When they came out with their forecast for 2023, they 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 said the expectation was that it would grow at about one third of that, 1.3. So if you could just kind of give us a, a an overview of where we are today relative to that forecast, um, and just kind of you know explain what, what the current landscape looks like from from a from a growth standpoint. Well, I think if you if you read the press, uh, Latin American business press. Starting about six weeks ago, there was a, an understanding that everybody got this year wrong. Um, mm-hmm. Most people were quite pessimistic about growth, both in the United States and in Latin America. And Latin America in particular has proven to be far more robust this year, particularly when measured in dollars, which is important for multinationals to repatriate their profits in dollars um, than anyone expected. And the, and the reason is really probably has to do more with one institution than anything else. And that's the central banks of Latin America. I recently penned two articles that are relevant to this. One was 2020, 20, sorry, 2023, the year of growth that everybody missed. And then more recently, um, speaking about the role of central banks and mm-hmm. central banks, you know, I've been like yourself, monitoring the region for many years. And in past crises, this, uh, the COVID crises uh, in terms of its economic crises component was the seventh crisis that I'd worked through. It was the first time that Latin American central banks in a moment of crises, when there's panic around the world by investors and money tends to leave emerging markets and go to safe havens, Latin American central banks have felt obliged in the past and really had no choice, but to raise interest rates in the hope of stemming that capital flight. Well, over the years, they've professionalized themselves as organizations. They've equipped themselves with more tools and the reserves and other sort of backstops for keeping money inside Latin America has much improved. And so in 2020, when the world was panicking, Latin American central banks actually lowered interest rates. And that saved 
thousands of corporations in Latin America from going bankrupt, precisely because they were quite heavily indebted and they would have been crushed by right. the normal business uh, cycle of higher interest rates. Right. Then when inflation, of course, the reason inflation happened and people blamed it on the Russians in Colombia, they blamed it on Petro, you know, it became the favorite political football in any country. The reality was that the world's leading central banks, so the, the US, China and Europe and, and some others, essentially expanded money supply by 22% in only 18 months. That's the equivalent of 15% annualized inflation. So that's what caused the inflation. They just put so much cash out there. And we're now in the process of, you know, reeling that back in with higher interest rates. But the Americans actually reacted and the Europeans much slower than Latin America's central bank. American central banks raised rates aggressively a good 12 months ahead of the Americans. And as a result of that, they have conquered inflation in Brazil and in Chile. And by the end of this year, we'll do so in Mexico and, um, and Peru. Peru. But as a result, by lifting interest rates so high, they captured a lot of that big flood of money that was seeking yields. Right. So the Mexican peso and the Brazilian real have been the best performing currencies in the last 18 months. The Colombian peso is the best performing currency in the world this year. And as a result, the consumers in Latin America, who's when they purchase products beyond the very basic staples, those products have a dollarized component. So if their currency is strong, they feel much more um, acquisition power in their pockets. And so they're able to keep consuming. And that is what has been the motor of growth, particularly in Latin America this year that nobody anticipated. So so I, I did in, in some of that research I was telling you about it, I did see a quote from uh, the head of the regional agenda, Latin America World Economic Forum in an article that she penned, I believe, in January. She said, quote, most analysts are forecasting another lost decade for Latin America. So that seems like a way off <laughs> in terms of right. I mean, maybe then, but now it seems like um, there is going to be uh, I think people are going to reverse course in terms of how they look at Latin America just based on what you said. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you spend a lot of time in the region, so do I. And when we are in the region, when a foreigner's in the region in business circles, they're probably talking to the elites. And by the elites, I don't mean the top sort of 12 families, but let's say the top 2% of the country. And the top 2% of the country in Latin America, um, you know, understandably feels when when suddenly you have a populist elected in every leading uh, country in Latin America. Right. And what they're saying during their campaign, and even in many cases during the early parts of their um, term, is in a direct attack on you, on the, on the ruling elites. It's a direct attack on the oligopolistic practices of, you know, a few companies in each sector. Right. It's attacks on the high incomes and the practice of moving their money offshore. It's it's a direct attack on you. So there is a completely understandable comprehension amongst these people that the world is going to hell and the region will not recover. And they do take a lot of their money out. I mean, in 2022, the Colombian peso dropped almost 18 percent because the Colombian elite took their money out. Right. Fear of um, Petro's government. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. But the reality is what what is proven really, I think, encouraging 
is the degree to which the institutions of democracy have stood up to populism in Latin America. Right. And this is these are these are the things that, you know, don't make the headlines over the last 20 years. But Latin America has made material advances in free press. Um, and certainly the internet has helped, you know, people in the United States sort of bemoan the internet as diluting good journalism, but in Latin America, where the press was so often bullied by governments or paid for by governments, there wasn't really an independent press and the, and the internet has actually provided much more independent voices, maybe not terribly professional, but certainly people bringing things to the surface that would have been hidden in the past. Right. Um, no, almost no president in Latin America, with the exception of AMLO, Mexico, controls effectively the other houses of government. So you have a living, breathing opposition. And the courts, not in every country, but certainly in places like Colombia, Chile, Brazil, Uruguay, to some degree, Argentina, mm-hmm. um, in Peru, have proven also a counterweight to um, executive power. So you see Boric who came out sort of idealistically with an agenda that was disruptive only to see it curtailed by his own people who voted against the referendum. Um, you've seen Lula trying to govern where his party, um, the PT has, you know, I think less than 10% of Congress. So, and, and the congressional thinking uh, is much more middle ground, if not middle right. And they continue to want to reform and, and, and make government more lean. Um, and that has frustrated his own ambitions. So he's tended to spend almost all his time outside of Brazil making noise because in Brazil, he's, uh, he's boxed in, uh, Petro in Colombia. Um, he got one reform through because his minister of finance was a savvy guy and, and mm-hmm. was a credible figure. Mm-hmm. He's gone. Yep. So there's no, there's nobody credible left in his cabinet. And the opposition has sort of woken up to their own divisions and, provided a much more unified front as opposition and his, his agenda, his 30 reforms that he wanted to pass, they're not going anywhere. So there's been a pushback against mm-hmm. populism, mm-hmm. against poorly governed populism. And I don't speak to left or right because I don't believe in that right. anymore. In Latin right. America. It's just right. one financial group fighting against another, mm-hmm. but populism tends to lead to bad policy because it's policy designed to get you votes as opposed to policy designed to improve the economy. And so when you get rid of your technocrats and the populace take over, then you have poor policymaking. And generally, that will get stopped by well-thinking political opposition, or if it's unconstitutional, stopped by the courts. And in the case of Chile, stopped by your own voters. That's so I'm a, lot more, I'm a lot more optimistic, optimistic. now than I was, say, 12, sure. 18 months ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, you mentioned... Uh, you know, Brazil and, and Chile and Colombia, and then and the central bank uh, having such a, a powerful role in in ensuring uh, some stability in those economies. And and then you look at Argentina, where the leading uh, candidate for the presidency is looking to abolish the central bank and dollarize the economy. Can you talk a little bit about Argentina and, and what you see happening there? I don't know if any of that will happen, but it's pretty drastic what he's saying. And it seems to have it is, and he's, 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 he's polling very well. Yeah, I, I do believe Millet will prevail as the yeah. president. Um, and I think that because he lacks um, a, a party himself to support him, he will reach across the aisle to um, Juntos para el Cambio, to Bullrich's party, 
to staff his cabinet because he knows that to legislate the kind of radical changes that Argentina needs, he will need the support of that party. Um, and so to me, that's the ideal combination. Um, there's still a chance that the Peronists will win, but I doubt it. I do think that uh, it will be Millet um, against the Peronists in the second round, but I think well, Millet will win. I've been going to Argentina for 25 years. And whenever I've been there, I've always been struck by the instinct of the of the youth, of the youthful vote. So, you know, sort of 15 to 30 year olds. Um, they would the, the sort of idealism and and the solutions that they would espouse came right out of a sort of a socialist left-wing handbook that the rest of the world had kind of written off years ago, but continued to gain traction or have traction in Argentina. I was always sort of dumbfounded by that because even in Cuba, they don't, you know, the, the, the youthful don't think that way. Um, and so when I was there in June this year and talking to people, and I always love to survey taxi drivers and, you know, just talk to people. And yep. <laughs> That was gone. The, the youthful people of Argentina were not espousing the typical parentist leftist rhetoric. They were, you know, they were libertarians. Uh, and that was a, that's a tectonic shift. Um, you know, there's an old expression in Argentine Spanish that says, um, Si a los 20 años no eres uh, de la izquierda, eres inhumano. Si a los 40 años no eres de la derecha, eres sonso. Um, because as we get older and sure. we own homes and we right. own things, right. we get a lot more concerned about preserving our wealth. And so right. we do tend to shift right to the right politically. And when we're young, we're idealistic. And so Correct. the left speaks to us. So, and that's, that, that rule of thumb seems to have shattered in Argentina. And that, that's a really ground change. Now, can Malay dollarize? That's the big question, right? And there's mm -hmm. a huge debate on, and a lot of people will say, no, it's not possible. Others are saying, yes, it is possible. So um, I'm not steeped enough in the sort of mechanics of, of uh, economics to tell you whether it's possible. But I do know that if, you know, the government doesn't have a lot of dollars, but Argentines apparently collectively have at least $300 billion of cash, literally under their mattresses. Right. So if you dollarize, <clears throat> it's not like you're starting from scratch. Right. Um, what will happen is if they dollarize, they will also have to, uh, essentially liberate currency controls. And by doing so, even though this will be music to the ears of institutional investors, they take time, right? For them to make, to get through their own due diligence and pass their own boards, the idea of buying, say, Argentine debt for a lot of institutional investors will be very much a new thing. And that will take time. In the meantime, Argentines themselves, without those currency controls, they're going to grab as many dollars as they can. Mm -hmm. And so, that preliminary step is going to lead to a devaluation, further devaluation of the peso Right. Um, at first. But dollarization or I don't like pegging as much, but uh, because like you say, you you still retain political control of the central bank if you peg. But I think dollarization would be a good thing for Argentina. Um, Ecuadorians, Ecuador's kind of had a mixed mixed. Um, uh, history with it. Right. Um, but, but Ecuador is a little different because Ecuador exports, they do export oil, but they also export bananas and flowers and shrimp and the bananas and flowers and shrimp have strong competitors. And if you're dollarized and you become less cost competitive, then that can hurt you. But in the case of Argentina, it's big, uh, 
its big natural resource exports are, um, well, will become oil. So to some degree, oil is a factor now, but will become much bigger with the back of the muerto. Um, um, agriculture, where Argentina is a world-class competitor and, you know, doesn't matter if they lose a little competitiveness, they're not going to lose share there. Mm. And uh, mining, where they're also got amazing deposits, uh, particularly in lithium. So I think that the downside of your competitiveness, if you dollarize, is not as great in Argentina, and the upside is huge. So I, I think it will happen. Hmm. It just the the path to it could be rocky and could be, if it's not really well executed, uh, could turn ugly. But yeah. uh, and that's the risk that a couple of years it takes to get there. But sure. I think the end result would be positive. You, you mentioned energy. You mentioned mining. So so looking at Latin America today, and obviously. As I mentioned at the at the beginning, you 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 know you've been advising some of the most important companies in the world um, that uh, are in Latin America or want to be in Latin America. Um, what sectors do you see in, let's say, South America? I know we can talk about Central America after, but South America uh, thriving uh, over the next three to five years. Well, you know, South America in particularly is blessed with abundant natural resources and not everywhere, but in several places has decent infrastructure to extract it and get it to market through its ports. So mining will continue to be, mm -hmm. you know, 30, something like 30 or 40% of the world's mining investment goes to Latin America. And there's good reason the deposits are rich, they're accessible, they're cheap. Um, the oil industry, uh, South America is home to roughly 15% of the world's deposits, but probably only about 6% of its production. So there's a lot of underexploited resources there. Um, agriculturally, South America is home to, I think, 25% of the world's arable land. Um, so again, very particularly Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, um, very competitive, uh, large scale farming. Look, the, the only thing that's stopping South America from flourishing is itself um, and some pretty outdated notions around resource nationalization and this sort of very naive idea that just because it sits below, below your soil means that it must be a national company or even worse, a state-owned company that exploits that. Right. The fact is that the most successful countries in the world in the extraction fields, whether it's minerals or oil, um, have done it by inviting private capital and taxing that private capital through royalties and through extraction fees, uh, as well as income tax. Um, they have not been the countries that relied on state actors or even mixed capital to do that. So I think that, um, of course, this heralds back and I, and I hate to make reference to colonial period because I think it's overdone in Latin America. But when it comes to resource extraction, I think it is an historic kind of injury that they're still uh, sort of reacting to. And that is that the Spaniards came to exploit these things. Um, the Portuguese less so, but the Spaniards definitely came and came in larger numbers when they discovered gold. And so this notion that, you know, foreigners are coming to rape our lands and take our resources is very much in the mindset of even the educated classes in Latin America and especially the urban classes. And 
one of the problems of these extraction industries is they don't see the, the benefits, right? They, these projects are in remote places. Mm-hmm. They employ mostly people in those remote places. Mm-hmm. But where they contribute enormously is the tax contribution. So just as an example, one mine in the Dominican Republic, Pueblo Viejo, owned by Barrick, uh, pays $400 million a year in taxes, by far the largest taxpayer in the Dominican Republic, essentially pays for the entire education budget wow. of the Dominican wow. Republic. Wow. And that's just one mine. Right. Um, in Panama, you know, the, the big copper mine that is still in dispute as to what exactly will be the tax regimen around that. And the politicians in Panama ahead of their next election are, you know, debating it. I think in the end of the day, hopefully they'll come to their senses. But I mean, this is this is the easiest money that government will ever make. Why would you turn it away? Right. Um, and, you know, yes, there are there are mines, a lot of illegal mining and small scale artisanal mining and domestically owned mining that is abusive to the environment and abusive to labor. And that we need to make a distinction between their practices and the practices of world-class miners who go out of their way to, to create low impact or at least um, acceptable impact mines right. uh, that do employ people that do pay their taxes. Um, and I just think that the more, the problem is that the urban voter in Latin America never sees these mines and mm-hmm. only hears the bad stories. Yeah. And uh, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a real PR problem for the mining yeah. industry. I, I want to ask you about two, um, two countries that, you know, maybe 50 years ago were not uh, uh, actively engaged in Latin America, but, you know, over the last, you know, 10 years um, have been heavily engaged in Latin America. But I want to first start, uh, let's start first with China and, and how much China has um, become a partner of South America. I know you wrote an article recently about this. Uh, can you talk a little bit about China and their role in the region Good, bad, ugly. What, what you can tell us about about China's role and 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 what what the U.S. you know should or can do um, is that a threat to the United States? So anyway, what you could tell us about how, how much time do we have, Alberto? Well, because <laughs> then the next one is Russia. So let's, let's right, right, right. <laughs> well, that's a shorter story. Um, okay. Look, Chinese engagement. Um, China learned from the Koreans and the Japanese. Two countries like China had in their favor um, labor and capital, but lacked resources. Right. And what uh, Korea and Japan did to secure long-term reliable supply of those resources is they they um, purchased long-term supply contracts when natural resource prices were low in the 1980s. By the time China got into a position where they too uh, needed to import a lot of natural resources. Now we're talking the early 2000, 2003, four or five, the price of those resources were high. And so they didn't want to lock themselves into long-term contracts. Instead, um, it made more sense to buy those assets. Not only that, but China was sitting on $2 trillion of reserves in an attempt, they had to keep buying dollars to keep uh, their own renminbi low so that their manufacturer sector could keep competitive. So they had all this cash. So they started buying mining assets, agricultural assets, and energy assets in Latin America. That was their first kind of impulse. And then the second was, okay, 
they're they're extracting this stuff, but to get it to market, they need better infrastructure. So they start investing in rail and ports as a way of getting those resources to China in a more efficient way. And also, why not make money? We're, we're buying this stuff. Why don't we make money transporting as well? Right, sure. Now they've shifted gear. They continue to uh, rely on those two things. But China today is no longer a maquiladora uh, country. There's 50 different car companies in China with hundreds of car brands, and they want to sell those products around the world. They're having trouble getting into the U.S. and European markets. So they're going after middle income markets. And that's why China really pressed Latin America um, going back sort of 12, 15 years to be recognized as a market economy. So there would be wouldn't be dumping uh disputes, right. but also to open up trade with these countries. And so right. now China, China's car companies have 15, 20% market share in places like Peru and Ecuador, right. and they continue to penetrate. And now they're into, you know, machinery, into uh, trucks, into commercial vehicles, et cetera. Um, the next stage is services companies. So as they take on these infrastructure projects, um, the service companies that are doing building those projects are by and large Chinese or supported by Chinese companies. And then the last phase, if you like, is um, selling Chinese services in the region. So starting with tourism. So the Chinese have begun buying up tourism destinations because the the biggest change in world tourism over the next 20 years will be outbound Chinese tourism. Um, and they, you, you already feel it in places like Europe. Um, but you'll be feeling it all around the world. And and like any tourist, we go through a bucket list, right? We say, oh, first I want to go to you know, Disneyland, then I right. want to go to San Francisco, <laughs> and then I want to go to London, and then I want to go to Rome. And then eventually you get to more exotic locations. And right. Latin America is of interest to Chinese tourists. So <laughs> China is expanding globally. At the end of the day, much like the Americans, their foreign policy is very much dictated by their domestic needs. And their domestic needs in China are, number one, to find neat resources, number two, to keep their engineering firms employed, and number three, to sell manufactured and branded goods abroad. Hmm. Okay. Russia. So, so uh, we have seen uh, in the last, uh, particularly uh, since the invasion of, of Ukraine, um, Russia making a very deliberate effort to increase its ties into the region right into diplomatic ties commercial ties obviously we know venezuela and nicaragua those go many years back those relationships but we've seen um there have been articles about uh relations um being pursued in places like bolivia and paraguay and chile um we also see there was a there was something uh i think a year ago where the U.S. government sanctioned uh, Russians who were investing in the mining sector in Guatemala. Um, Russia is a a concern for particularly you know those clients that we have worked with in the banking sector because they have to deal with understanding the sanction environment and all of these sanctions that the United States, not just the United States, but the European Union as well as the UN, have placed uh, against Russian entities. Um, talk a little bit about. Russia and their uh, deeper dive into the region. You said it's a shorter conversation. I'm curious to know what you mean by that. Well, first of all, I think that in the case of China, 
even in the case of purely private capital, of which there's quite a bit acting in Latin America, there's still a collusion with the government. At the end of the day, Chinese capital will utilize uh, government relations and government pressure to open doors to get things done. Uh, China is the largest bilateral lender to Latin America of any country by far. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to exercise that kind of pressure. In the case of Russia, a lot of the activity you've seen since the beginning of the Ukrainian war is private capital. And they're not necessarily in collusion with Putin and uh, the Russian government. They are, in fact, trying to distance themselves from the reach of Putin and Moscow because they're trying to avoid sanctions. So they're right. looking to take their businesses and their capital and put it in industries that they know well. So mm -hmm. they're miners themselves back in Russia. Mm -hmm. They're in the metals industry themselves or in the energy sector themselves. So they know these industries. They've amassed fortunes. They're finding it difficult to park that money anywhere um, that's going to produce any kind of yield for them. Uh, and be exo exonerated from uh, sanctions. And so they're finding ways to put that money into businesses that they know. And Latin America is a region that produces many of the same natural resources that Russia does. So it's really, it's more about capital flight and uh, right. capital flight finding natural homes for it. Right. Um, I don't yeah. think it comes with the same political baggage. And I don't think it comes with the same... You know, there's a lot of concern about China and to what degree their investments come with the ability to monitor and to relay sensitive information back to China. Right. I don't think that's the same case with Russia. I do think that this is money that's kind of cowboy money that is avoiding uh, monitoring, avoiding sanctions, avoiding um discovery. So right. uh, they tend to be very low profile and they try to make as little noise as possible. So it's a very different kind of, it's much less of a geopolitical threat. Right. Say. Right. Right. Okay. Um, let's move on to uh, Central America, which is, uh, which is, you know, very interesting region. Um, every country has its has its issues, but you've got. Uh, I, I was in Panama a couple of weeks ago to to do a presentation to a, a bankers association, and I had not been there in about a decade, and I was so impressed with the landscape and how many new developments, and they continue developing. How much capital has flown into flowed into Panama? And you look at Guatemala and you're having the, some serious issues with, with alleged political corruption, with the new president being elected in, in what you could argue was a landslide. And so there's been some, some allegations of, of voter fraud. Uh, El Salvador is, um, boy, that's a, that's a really interesting country. They've, they've fully embraced the cryptocurrency. Um, there's also issues and, and there's been some, accusations of human rights violations by by the Bukele administration. You have the Nicaraguan dictatorship around the corner that has ties to, you know, Venezuela and, and Russia. So talk about Central America, um, just sort of the market as a region economically. How do you see it, um, you know, uh, over the next couple of years? I, anyway, so. Well, no, I think, I mean, your, your, your sort of preamble there is illustrative of how, um, 
how difficult it is to generalize about Central America. But if you can, I would divide it into two halves. So Costa Rica and Panama representing one half and the uh, other countries representing, uh, you know, Northern Central America, very different levels of development, very different uh, histories. Um, I agree that Panama is impressive. Um, they've managed to be governed by, you know, at the end of the day, um, by pro-business, pro-investment governments. They've leaned left, they've leaned right. There's plenty of corruption still. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, um, they have a strong legal system. You can park your money there. You can invest there without fear of expropriation, without fear of, you know, sort of out-and-out -out government fraud. Um, Costa Rica has always been uh, an area of pretty impressive stability. Right. Um, there's there's some deficiencies in Costa Rica, especially around sort of national infrastructure and such. They were very late to privatize their telephony. Uh, their roads are still horrible. Um, but it's a safe place to to live. It's a safe place to buy property, and it's been a very uh, successful country at attracting sort of micro investment, i.e individuals buying homes, individuals starting businesses. That's um, right. So it's quite unique that way. Right. When you look further north, you know, Guatemala, uh, and I was there just a couple of weeks ago, um, certainly uh, has suffered from corruption and the strong influence of organized crime uh, that has reached the highest echelons of governments in the past. Right. <laughs> I think that this last election actually... Um, was probably a very welcome and refreshing change mm -hmm. because it was the establishment government or establishment party, uh, one of the establishment parties led by Santa Torres, who was defeated. And she represented sort of the old guard, the 12 families that run the country, uh, the money class, and, and uh, that is being accused of, of corruption. The new leader who almost didn't make it to the ballot, um, it represents, although he, he does have in his family history and politics, he represents a sort of a new face. So now he still has to govern and he still has to make peace with the money class. And they're still quite reticent of what he plans to do. Right. But one has to understand in Guatemala, I think they understand that what you have to say on the campaign trail and how you govern are two different things. And I mm -hmm. think at the end of the day, he is not going to radically change what has been traditionally a very well-run fiscal and monetary through policies in Guatemala that's made it the Quetzal a very stable currency and the country a stable place. Yeah. But there's lots of problems to overcome. And you see that what what Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador all have in common is uh huge emigration and um, lots of organized violence that in the past has led to as much as 60% of families without a head of house, a male head of household. And that socially is a very challenging place to be in mm -hmm. terms of what does what do you do when you have a 15 year old son without a father um, and he, he can't find employment? Well, what's he going to end up? He's going to end up in a, in a gang. Somewhere. Right. So right. this, this has been the sort of social formula of violence result of that how do you react how do you govern that well you know I, and when i'm in places like europe or the northeast and us and and understandably people are very critical of bukele and his draconian measures that he's taken to fight violence and fight gangs but you know i always try to relate to people in uh, in those sort of first world environments about 
remind them of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs tells us that the first thing we have to do is feel, is be fed, have a roof over a house and feel safe. Once those are taken care of, we can worry about education. We can worry about road building. We can worry about human rights. We can worry about gender rights. We can worry about um, in the environment. But until you take care of that basic stuff, Mm -hmm. people can't even get concerned about the more aspirational Mm. uh, aspects of society. And so Bukele came in with one of the highest murder rates in the world. Right. And his draconian measures have made El Salvador considerably safer. Right. If you were a small, a small shopkeeper in downtown San Salvador, every week a local gang member would come in your door and say to you, We've been monitoring you. We think you make, you know, a thousand one thousand fifteen hundred dollars a week, and we want five hundred dollars of that starting tomorrow mm-hmm. and every week. And if you don't, you know, we're going to burn down your business. We're going to do whatever we want to you. Well, that guy's going to vote for Bukele. Right. You know? Um, and so, yes, right. he has enormous, enormous approval levels in his country. Now, the problem with, and he calls himself the world's sexiest dictator. The problem is, you know, maybe you need absolute power to make change in an environment like that. But once you achieve that change, once you bring down the violence, what do you do with that power? Right. And that's that's what's scary, right? That because is if scary. you have that kind of power, yeah. then you might say, well, you know what? I'll stick I'm around. Really popular. <laughs> I'm really popular, but I'm not rich yet. Right. Maybe I'd like to take, you know, I've I've made life way better for all the businesses in El Salvador. Maybe I should take a portion of that for myself. Yeah. And that it's what it's what happens after that first good work is done that becomes right. problematic with absolute power, right? Or I'm going to um, let's let's have a constitutional referendum to change the you know right. I'll, I'm going to run for a second sure. and third and fourth term um uh, because exactly. I've, I've done yeah. so well. That that that's Yeah, he's yeah. already he's already doing that, right? He's yeah. running again which constitutionally is uh, disallowed so. Right. right. You know, this is what happened in Nicaragua. Um Ortega um inherited a a violent country and he brought peace and security to that country for businesses in Nicaragua, even though they didn't like his left-wing rhetoric, they were happy to be operating and their profits went up and their business went up. And Nicaragua for a period of time was the favorite maquiladora destination. Lots of textile companies were moving there. Um, But then he began to abuse his power and he began to tax those businesses in ways that are illegal and unconstitutional. And he basically lost favor with the money class in Nicaragua. And now the economy's in a sort of steady descent because of it. So again, you know, absolute power sometimes, you know, not if only the rest of the world could act like Singapore, you come in as sort of dictator, you make things good. And then somehow you you transition to something more palpable as a government, but that has not happened in these places. Would you say that, that the, one of the reasons why Panama and Costa Rica, uh, and you, you sort of categorize them separate from the other countries um, in terms of their uh, economic stability is because they are essentially dollarized economies versus no it's it's the education level it's a okay. it's a history of investing in education the case right. of Panama was heavily influenced by the American occupation right I'm to be honest I don't know about enough about the early history of Costa Rica but what what sets them apart is a very high level of literacy and education mm-hmm. and so you have an educated voter base and that mm-hmm. voter base is going to choose 
smart politicians. Right. They have a history of doing that. So. Right, 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 right. Um, what, what would you, looking at the region, uh, what's the most politically stable country? If you had to pick one or two or three. Um, well, there's a difference between stable and vibrancy because you can have you know, Nicaragua is stable. <laughs> but it's not democratic. So sure. I don't know that stability right. is a, well, we can talk about stability and we can talk about vibrancy of democracy, right? And I would say the most mm -hmm. vibrant democracy mm -hmm. in Latin America for a long time has been Brazil, um, where, and I say that because it's a relatively weak presidency. It is a strong Congress strong senate you also have truly independent courts i mean it was it was the judicial system that brought down odebrecht and brought down the first lula administration in terms of bringing truth to power right and right. there's not many countries in latin america where you could and it still took incredible bravery and it took mm -hmm. a bit of luck and it took you know sergio moro and and other brave souls who who took on the powers in brasilia but that's almost you know, you, you, there's not many places in Latin America where that might happen. Maybe Chile, maybe Uruguay. But Brazil, I think, has strong judiciary, um, a vibrant press, and also has strong state governments. Um, so in terms of a country where power is unable to consolidate itself, and therefore you do have these balancing forces, um, Brazil is, is in a class of its own. Have, have we heard the last of uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil? given um that's a good question i mean i think that what I mean, he's been he's, he's been sort for. of low, low key relative to yeah you know him his well own. he's he's worried about you know he's worried about um legal action against him yes you know when you're in pre when you're president and you're presiding through a crisis which he did in covid there's going to be some actions taken that are uh, condemnable legally. Um, so there's no doubt that there's somewhere there to be found. And I'm not even talking about the sort of ill actions of his sons, which definitely, um, you know, people could say were fraud and, and other um, misdeeds. But in terms of him, I think that what he stood for, which was standing up to the powerful parties in Brasilia, which was lesser government, mm -hmm. um, which was uh, sort of uh, libertarianism, that's still that sentiment, whether he's the vessel or somebody else is the vessel of that sentiment, that sentiment is still very strong in a good portion of Brazilians. Um, nobody, very few people in Brazil are, well, let's put it this way, very few of the middle and upper classes in Brazil are excited that Lula is in power. Even the liberals, the wealthy liberals in Brazil are not thrilled that Lula is in power because the man <laughs> was caught stealing a lot of money. And his party was responsible for the largest recorded fraud and corruption case in, in the history of Brazil. Right. But um, they were more dismayed by the personality of Bolsonaro and some of the things that he said and just the kind of embarrassment that he had. So, you know, the parallels with Trump are, are pretty strong in mm -hmm. that regards. But sure. I think that, you know, whether Bolsonaro comes back or not may not be the question as much as is 
libertarian sort of right-wing politics, does it have a future in Brazil? And I'd say the answer is yes. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I agree. I wanted to ask you this question, which is, I, I, I know in 2007, you co-authored a book with uh, Jerry Har um, called Can Latin America Compete? Um, so in 2023, can a Latin America compete? What's your response to that? In, in some... In some countries, in some sure. regions of countries, and in some sectors, absolutely. Right. In the grand scheme of things, um, still way behind uh, in its level of competitiveness, but certainly in certain sectors. And as investors, you know, savvy investors understand that and mm-hmm. do direct their money to those competitive sectors and regions and governances, and they stay away from the rest, you know. Um, but so it's, uh, I, I hate to give you a partial answer, but it's kind of a, a, an old fashioned British yes and no. <laughs> um, well, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I'm sure we can go on and on about different, uh, you know, dive into specific sectors, but, um, but I wanted to keep this kind of an overview and, and I, th- I think sure. this was fantastic, but I want to now ask you a, a lighter question. Um, okay. and, and we finish all of our, podcast with with something like this um which is uh, I'm, I'm a music enthusiast a very passionate fan of all different kinds of genres i'm a collector of music i've written about music my son's a musician so um obviously i want to ask you a question about music so i know that you uh were born in peru uh but uh, essentially raised in canada and so i wanted to ask you um there have been so many uh artists that have come out of canada musicians that have come out of canada i'll just name a few and i wanted you to kind of tell me if any of these will make your top three uh and then maybe you have one on your own uh so um you have neil young uh leonard cohen rush the band we just lost robbie robertson um and then i'll just throw in celine dion the weekend drake uh so of all those that i've named um which one would you sort of put at the very top of your favorites and i hope you don't say Corey hart (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny you know as a canadian and, and people in the states don't always know this but when i grew up in canada and that may still be the case i'm not sure but Canada uh, and France at one point were the only two countries in the world with a ministry of culture. And in, and in the case of Canada, it was really designed to how do we stop the sort of um, the wave of cultural invasion by the Americans? And one of the answers that they came up with was they would they would oblige radio stations to play a certain minimal percentage of their music from Canadian artists. Mm. And um you know, Canada does produce, uh, especially it, ironically, I think when they lowered that number or got rid of that rule, uh, a lot more Canadian artists actually came out of the woodwork and, and you know, sort of there's a great invasion, particularly of female vocalists into the United States market. But right. in my day, I still have sort of ingrained in my inner psyche, um, you know, the most popular tracks of uh, Rush and of the band and um you know the, the these artists have been, so i mean rush i actually because i think i was sort of 
it was drilled into me and I, oh God, not again, another Rush song. <laughs> I didn't appreciate who they were. Right. And it wasn't until much later, ironically, living in Mexico, where I came across this massive fan base of Rush fans. And they would say, oh, no, you've got to you've got to listen to the lyrics. And, you know, the drumming is world class. And, and I sort of gained an appreciation sure. of it much later in my life. Yeah. You know, yeah. different Leonard Cohen to yeah. me has, you know, as a songwriter, as a, as a true poet, I think. You know, again, I didn't really appreciate, I wasn't necessarily drawn to his music as a young person, but later in life, again, and this happens a lot to Canadians, it's when they realize how popular these artists are in the United States and even further afield that they go, oh, yeah. Hmm. So there's this natural sort of thing, because it was sort of jammed down our throats or through our ears uh, as a youthful audience, we didn't appreciate it. But then when we realize just how good these are, people are on the world stage, then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. great. You know, yeah. listen to them all the time. <laughs> oh, and, and, so and, it, it was yeah. sort of came to me later in life, actually. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm Rush, much more of a merenguista and salsero. And yeah. The last And I, I particularly, I remember once I was at a party late at night. It was a puente. So it was a Sunday night and we were mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a, an apartment in Mexico City and some music was playing and I was dancing with my girlfriend and uh, <clears throat> this this older Cuban woman, about 60, looks to me and says, Oye, gringo, te voy a enseñar a bailar. And so <laughs> I got up and she taught me the sort of basic moves of merengue and salsa and cumbia. And um, so that, and then, I, you know, once I felt comfortable dancing to them, then I actually really began to appreciate them. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I very much appreciate uh, all the different music varieties in Latin America when it comes to dancing. There is some fantastic music in Latin America. I didn't, we didn't get d yeah. dive into that. We can do a whole other podcast on that alone. But, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. But but uh, but you mentioned Rush. Rush is it's funny. Um, I saw Rush in concert a few years ago, and one of the things I noticed when I looked around the audience was the the most amount of air drummers that I had seen ever <laughs> in one place. Everybody just Absolutely. was like playing along with Neil Peart's yeah. drumming. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, everywhere yeah. you looked, everybody was air drumming. So <laughs> Rush. Yeah. well, the man's a genius, the man's a genius, you know, yeah. as you know, he's an introvert, but he's a genius. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, sadly he passed away. So we, we, we lost yeah. Neil yeah. Peart, but uh, yeah, great, great band. So anyway, John, Thank you today for for uh, doing this. Um, continue to uh, demystify Latin America. And, you too, my uh, friend. Appreciate <laughs> it. And uh, for all those who are listening and watching, thank you. And please subscribe if you want to uh, stay tuned for uh, uh, our episodes. Uh, we do this uh, quite frequently. So um, thanks again for joining us. And John, thank you today for your time. Mm -hmm.